Welcome to Sparks of History, where world history and Jewish history meet. We are very, very pleased to be joined today by noted author Jean Hoots. Ms. Hoots, uh, Ms. Hoots's books include The Bones You Have Cast Down, a novel set in late medieval Italy, the Cosmic Tarot book. Her writings have appeared in numerous publications, including the New York Times, the Kenyan Review, the Millions, North American Review, Plowshares on the Seawall and Civil War Monitor. She is the co-founder of Circling Rivers, an independent press dedicated to poetry and literary nonfiction. See right there. And Ms. Hoots is a member of the James River Writers and the National Book Critics Circle. And today we'll be discussing fascinating work of Ms. Hoots um, with Walt Whitman himself. Um, just a gorgeously laid out book, deeply researched with every page is a gem, really just, just a gem. It, it takes you through Walt Whitman, his life, his poetry, his influences, his friends, his companions. It's just you know, a pleasure to read. Um, so uh, just to begin, just a little bit about your background and how you became interested in Walt Whitman? Well, I, I don't have a particularly dramatic background. Um, my father was an army officer, U.S. Army officer. He met my mother in Venice, Italy, where she grew up. And um, we moved around a lot. And I think uh, maybe that and having a European mother made me a little bit of an outside cause, uh, outsider because I was always the new kid. And that's one of the connections I have with Walt Whitman. He felt a bit of an outsider himself. And, uh, but you know, we, I had a happy childhood. We, back then we had a lot of freedom and my sister Joe and I rambled all over the place outside, which was another thing that Walt Whitman did a lot in his childhood. Um, but I, I, we read Walt Whitman in school, like most kids do. And the thing I can't say that I really got into Walt Whitman when I was in elementary school and, and high school, but in college, one day, one of my college professors was actually making fun of Walt Whitman. And he was making fun, particularly of the poem when Lilac's last in the dooryard bloomed. And he said, who can read this, you know, without sounding ridiculous? Cause there's a lot of lines that start, oh. And a boy in our class, a young man, I should say, um, in an ROTC uniform, volunteered and he read it so beautifully and my teacher was you know I could tell he was like wow you know okay you win <laughs> and that's what got me into Walt Women is hearing his poetry read so beautifully and well um, and, and then it just kind of went on from there another connection that I have with them is that he lived during a time that I find um, historically quite fascinating. And if, if I can, can I share the screen? Absolutely. Okay, I'll try to do this um, without too much. Oh, okay, so, um, okay, I guess you need to, to allow me to, to share the screen. Um, but anyway, he, Walt Whitman lived in the 19th century and in American history, that was just an incredible time of change and tumult and um, really eccentric movements and utopias and, 
who is when American literature really um, became itself, in part, of course, because of women, but also the people who went before him, uh, for example, um, Ralph Aldo Emerson, who sort of, in my mind, sort of paved the way for women to do what he did, which is to create a very American um, literary tradition in poetry. Can, can you share the screen now? I think I tried to give you- Okay, let's see. Did it happen? Yeah, that works. Okay, let's see. Just a few, okay, here we go. So this, can you see this now? Is this working? Yep, absolutely. Okay, so Walt Whitman described his main work, Leaves of Grass, which is his whole collected work that he, from when he was in his 30s to when he died, he revised and rearranged and added to and um, worked on Leaves of Grass. It was his, almost like a poetic autobiography. He described it as an attempt to put a person a human being myself in the latter half of the 19th century in America, freely, fully, and truly on record. So that's where the, you know, my book comes together with Walt Whitman is we both are very fascinated with that era. So um, let's just set the scene just a little bit more in detail. Obviously 19th century He's born, he lives through which events where obviously we're going to get to the Civil War and slavery. Just, just set the scene a little bit, like maybe just a, a quick bio. Of Walt Whitman? Yes. Yeah. Um, he was born in 1819. Um, his father was uh, what, what we call a Jacksonian Democrat. Uh, very pro-labor. They had Quaker roots in their family. They weren't you know, they didn't belong to a meeting and, and adhere to the Quaker way of life, but that was a huge influence on Walt Whitman. As a child, his parents brought him to hear Elias Hicks um, speak. He was a Quaker who um, created a, a new um, movement in Quaker, you know, in the Quaker uh, tradition um, that was more... Um, not as attached to the Bible, you could say, and more attached to the individual personal experience with God. And um, another big influence was Thomas Paine, who um, was obviously detached from the Bible as, you know, people fundamentalists might see it. Um, there were, he had a lot of literary influences because he read like crazy. His, his formal education um, ended, I think he was only 11 when he stopped going to like an actual school, but he read a lot. And the other thing about the 19th century is people were out, their houses were small and you had people living on top of each other. I, I visited his house in Long Island where he was a child and I just can't believe how many people lived in there. You know, I would have driven, you know, your average American just nuts, you know, to live all piled up like that with the smoke, you know, from the cook fires all over the you know rooms and everything. And um, he, but people went out like and went to lectures, they went to plays, they went to concerts, much more than people do now. We rely on, on um, electronics for our entertainment. So he was very educated in his way, although he never got an academic education. And that was another outsider thing that he felt that he wasn't part of the literary establishment. And this will come into play with the way some of American Jewish poets um, 
read Walt Whitman, you know, because I know you, you wanted to, of course, you want to know about that. Um, <clears throat> he lived in uh, Brooklyn for a good part of his life. He lived in Manhattan at times. He was involved politically, but he ended up getting um, with the Democratic Party and the Tammany Hall Democrats in, in New York, but he got disillusioned with that and pretty much withdrew from politics um, altogether. He, in later life, he wasn't what we would consider an activist. He had his convictions, but he wasn't an activist by any means. Uh, he loved, well, um, Abraham Lincoln, you know, was his, his president. You know, maybe all of us Americans have a president in our lifetime and, and Abraham Lincoln was his. Uh, he lived in Washington, D.C. He, he, during the Civil War, he took care of um, soldiers in Washington, D.C. in the hospitals, um, both mostly Union soldiers, of course, but also Confederates who ended up in the Washington hospitals. He, um, that was when he met his friend Peter Doyle, uh, who was probably his lover, but definitely a romantic friend, if not physical. They, uh, so they, they were wanderers around DC. They went to all kinds of entertainments together. Walt Whitman would recite Shakespeare by heart and Peter Doyle, who was very unschooled, absorbed it and, and appreciated it. Um, uh, after about 10 years in DC, I believe it was about 10 years, uh, Walt unfortunately had a disabling stroke. And he moved up to Camden, New Jersey, where his brother George lived, his younger brother, and uh, lived out the rest of his life there. And that was when he met the most interesting and influential Jewish person in his life, and that was Horace Traubel. Okay. Well, well, I don't know how much you want to go no, from there. We'll, 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 yeah. we'll get to that. We'll get yeah. to that. No, it's actually interesting because I was raised, um, I grew up in the Philadelphia region, and Right. Only after reading your book did I understand why there's a bridge called the Walt Whitman Bridge, which goes from the Camden area into Philadelphia. I never, and I never knew why. I guess they, I figured they just named it Walt Whitman because he was a great poet. But now, now I learned the the connection. Yeah, he he visited Philadelphia a lot, and one of the pleasures in his later life was taking the ferry from Camden. They had a ferry back then from Camden to Philadelphia. That was a great uh, pleasure of his. I, I was I was I was very much struck by by the fact that um, uh, the leaves of grass was a work that evolved. In other words, Paul Bitten wrote it, um, and then he kept working on it, um, which I, I just found very interesting. You know, thinking that a poet like comes up with has inspiration and you know seizes the moment, writes the poetry, and then it's over. But he kept working on it. What what makes the Leaves of Grass, such a compelling American poem. What is it about it? It was that way by design. You know, in, in fact, all of Walt Whitman's work was, um, he, he started, I'll, I'll show a picture of um, one of his great influences here. Um, Ralph Waldo Emerson, mm -hmm. who uh, said, that America had to have its own poetry. You know, we, we needed to get past um, the conventions and traditions and, um, you know, old religions and so forth of Europe and find our own voice. And Whitman wrote about 
Americans and American landscape. He he didn't reach out to the rest of the world. It wasn't, you know, he wasn't totally closed in, but he saw America, he called America the great poem, you know, America itself a great poem. And um, he, in that, he really followed um, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's lead. Um, the other thing that I think made it's such a work in motion, as it were, is that Walt took pieces of his life as they happened and added it. And part of the reason he was able to do that, to be honest, was because he was essentially self-published. So he had control of his work. He had control of the, um, and sometimes he did have another publisher, but he always had a lot of control over it. He, um, his early, in his early life, he apprenticed um, as a printer. So he knew how to typeset. Um, and he knew, you know, all about the printing process, and he oversaw the design of his books as well. So when he wanted to issue a new edition, he could do it, and he could put in whatever he wanted to. Um, some of it, you know, I don't think is that great. That's just my opinion, you know. But when you consider how many poems there are in there, it all adds up pretty, <laughs> pretty wonderfully. Um, some of the books were separate, like drum taps were his, um, that comprised his war poems, his civil war poems. And he first published that as sort of a chapbook. And then he bounded in with his leaves of grass. So he was always able to pull in the parts of his life and the things that he did in, especially in America, to leaves of grass. Is there something you wanted to show or? Yeah, I'll, I'll show you. A, a, um, this is from a, a song of myself, which is one of his most famous poems that's included in Leaves of Grass, of course. It's a very long poem and it, it's not, um, it's not all of a piece. It, it moves around a lot to a different, a lot of a different, a lot of different areas in the poet's thoughts and, and life. But this kind of illustrates how he just included everything. And there wasn't any um, poetic delicacy about his works. And this caused him a lot of trouble in his life, but he never gave in and he never uh, backed down. And even Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was a very staunch early supporter, kind of at some point was like, well, can you just tone it down a little bit, you know? But Walt didn't do this, so it it's, uh, reads, the bride unrumples her white dress, the minute hand of the clock moves slowly, the opium eater reclines with rigid head and just oak lips, the prostitute draggles her shawl, her bonnet bobs on her tipsy and pimpled neck, the crowd laugh at her blackguard oaths, the men jeer and wink to each other, miserable, I do not laugh at your oaths nor jeer you. The president holding a cabinet council is surrounded by the great secretaries. So that little excerpt is an example of several things about Walt Whitman. One is what they call his catalogs, which is like a list like this. And the other is how he can juxtapose the president with the great secretaries with a um, probably, you know, syphilis riddled prostitute drunken on a sidewalk is the way I picture her. Right. And it works and it shows us life. Um, and he, and it shows also how he stripped out any 
old world um, stuff. You know, he said his poetry, he said he was best pleased to disregard literariness, which again is another um, Carl Shapiro, the American Jewish poet, was very much in sympathy with that point of view. What, what is your favorite Whitman poem and, and why? What's, what's your favorite? My favorite is the poem to a stranger. Uh, and it's very, it's, I also like to um, crossing Brooklyn Ferry very much, but to a stranger, um, it's the way I, I'd like to see people, which is every stranger, you know, you connect with every stranger. When you pass someone on the sidewalk, you know that, that you're kin with them. Um, when you check out at the grocery store, you know that the, the person helping to bag your groceries and the person who's taking your, your you know, payment is one, you know, the same as you in a way. Not the same, but, you know, a family member in a way. And uh, as uh, I practice Buddhism and we have a belief that um, you everyone you meet is actually someone that you knew in a past life. And it, to me, it's quite remarkable that Walt Whitman uh, captured that in this poem, although, you know, he wasn't a Buddhist. Uh, would you like me to read it or is it too? Uh, yeah, certainly, uh, certainly. To a stranger, passing stranger, you do not know how longingly I look upon you. You must be he I was seeking or she I was seeking. It comes to me as of a dream. I have somewhere surely lived a life of joy with you. All is recalled as we flip by each other, fluid, affectionate, chaste, matured. You grew up with me, were a boy with me or a girl with me. You gave me, I ate with you and slept with you. Your body has become not yours <coughs> only. No, I left my body mine only. You give me the pleasure of your eyes, face, flesh as we pass. You take of my beard, breast, hands in return. I am not to speak to you. I am to think of you when I sit alone or wake at night alone. I am to wait. I do not doubt I am to meet you again. I am to see to it that I do not lose you. And I, I took this picture of the, the old man, if this is in my book, because, you know, he really is someone that, you know, people tend to just, I, I have a feeling that old people are pretty much invisible to, to many of us. And um, I've, I'm experiencing this myself, you know, as I age. And he's passing by and, and you, you wouldn't think twice about it, but maybe he's thinking twice about you. You know, the stranger you pass by could be Walt Whitman in a way. Um, so I, I just uh, find that poem very beautiful, and I think it really um, is a, sort of a heart lesson on, on how we can uh, be with each other. Thank 